All right, hi everybody. Hope you're doing well today, and thank you very much for making it today. I know I would have found the allure of the podcast intriguing, as opposed to making it through this weather, and I appreciate you taking the effort to come out today. Um, we, we have a really important class today as we set the stage to move into what's always been sort of the hottest area for admin law debate. How should courts go about reviewing the merits of a decision of an administrative tribunal? And it really comes down to how much, if any, deference should they give to the tribunal's interpretation of the law and its application of the law to the facts before it. So, as I hinted at last class, I think it's very important in order to grapple with Vavilov that we know how we got there. And so today is going to be a bit of a historical lesson, but in so getting there, I want to set the stage to explain the underlying tensions that have caused this, at time, ricocheting back and forth and strong disagreements among you know, very learned judges as to what the proper approach ought to be. Before we get into that, though, I want to quickly touch on a couple of Min Law in the News stories that I saw today. I actually got my newspaper and I was like, hey, what is any Min Law in the News? Over the, like the front cover, first, or the, second, the story under the folds of Min Law. Then I flipped over to the business page, the top stories of Min Law also. It really is everywhere once you start looking for it. So I want to touch on those. I also want to really quickly touch on the paper before we get into the substance of today. So the admin law and the news that I wanted to uh, bring up are, are two stories. And the first is this absolutely tragic fire over the summer in Lytton, BC, which I'm sure you're, you're aware of. Um, just unimaginable what happened there. And the story that you see is the transportation investigators rule out trains as cause of the fire. So you see the Transportation Safety Board has ruled out rail activity as the cause of the deadly wildfire. So in essence, Lytton was obviously a tinderbox after the temperatures that were hit last summer. And now there's a huge question as to what was the spark. Who cares about what was the spark? Well, everybody who suffered a loss in Lytton and all of their insurers would like to know if there's somebody who is legally responsible for the you know, many millions of dollars of, of loss that happened in Lytton. And so there was a theory that it was caused by a train, by a, it was a, a train sparked the fire that caused the damage in Lytton. And the Transportation Safety Board has gone through an investigation and has ruled out rail activity as the primary cause, or as the cause of the, of the fire. So we have an administrative body who's tasked with investigating an event and has come to a conclusion. So what's next? How does this resonate for the people who might be interested in this? Well. There was one body with very, or one entity with very obvious standing to challenge the findings of the Transportation Safety Board had it gone against them, and that would be the train company. 
they certainly would say we were affected by this investigation, we had a right of procedural fairness in relation to this investigation. They could either seek an internal appeal, if indeed you can go to the Transport Appeal Tribunal of Canada, which I'm not certain if this is a investigation that has an appeal right internally or not, and otherwise they could seek judicial review. The more tricky question though is what about the many people who suffered a loss as a result of the fire, but were not you know, directly the subject of the investigation, the homeowners, the business owners, the insurers, etc., etc. And so here you run into questions of standing as they resonate within judicial review. Would those groups have standing to bring a judicial review action? And the analysis there would track the analysis in any other judicial consideration of standing that you would have looked at presumably in your constitutional law course, if not elsewhere, drawing upon the downtown Eastside sex workers case of is there private interest standing or alternatively could you establish public interest standing? Um, and then you would have a question of whether those groups could assert a procedural fairness right. Were they directly affected by this decision or not? this investigation, and it would be an interesting question. And then you get the question more fundamentally of if, you, if, a, if a homeowner in Lytton, or Lytton, I'm not totally sure how to say it, came to you and said, I want to challenge this because I want to recover damages from the train company because I think that they're the ones who sparked the fire that destroyed my home. You'd have to think to yourself, well, do I even need to bring a judicial review of this? Or is this one of those cases, like I mentioned that case, um, why am I drawing a blank on the name? Um, the, the principle being that if you really want money and you don't want, uh, and you don't want to overturn a administrative decision, you're entitled to seek damages in an action without previously bringing a judicial review application. Telezone is the name of the case. Sorry for that blanking on that. Um, so there's a, a range of questions that come out of this before you even, I mean, this is what I got from reading the Globe and Mail article, let alone looking at the investigation report itself to see what may or may not be vulnerable within it, what process was afforded to who, et cetera, et cetera. And so you see just a kind of litany of administrative law issues and procedural questions that arise in relation to this very tragic fire. And I would be shocked if there isn't some administrative law uh, jurisprudence that comes out of this determination, whether it be an action for damages brought by an insurer or somebody else which discusses the impact and import of this Transportation Safety Board report, or whether somebody does try to go the route of bringing a judicial review application or otherwise challenging this determination in any way. So that's one example. And the other example I saw was um, resonated with what we learned last class. The government urged to speed up foreign worker applications by farms and meat plants. And here you have administration of the temporary foreign worker program, which is a program which allows companies to apply to bring in workers um, to assist generally in, in low-skilled uh, labor 
areas where there's not uh, sufficient local Canadian uh, population to, to accomplish the goals, a lot of agricultural work, uh, but it's not strictly limited to, to that. Uh, Professor Hasty, if you know Bethany Hasty, has done much of her work on this program. Um, so if, you're, if you have more questions on that, she's the person to talk to. But where it resonates with us in admin law is, of course, what is the uh, concern? It's that the regulations need to change. The, the concern that the uh, farm owners and the meat plants have is that the regulatory burden on them for getting these process these applications through is too large and they're not able to meet current demand because of the lag time and processing and what's their action they want they want a change in the regulations to be done by the minister they don't want a change in the legislation they want a change in the regulations and so you see here a um, in the story it talks about how quickly they could change these regulations where they to um, so desire, and so you see the potential for the delegation of power through regulations to resonate in a, you know, an answer to what this industry group is saying is an acute problem. Um, now, of course, there's another side to the story. There's reasons for careful review of the uh, usage of this program. It can be, um, yeah, again, Professor Hasty is much more knowledgeable in this than I am, of course, but it can be. Uh, a way to circumvent union um, agreements to try to rely on temporary foreign workers. And there have been you know, some tremendous humanitarian issues with the treatment of foreign workers. So increased reliance on the program is not without controversy. But you see here you know, a push for an exercise of delegated authority and the um, ability of this delegated authority to quickly resolve our quickly respond to changing circumstances you know, being the source of this push. So just a couple stories to keep you know, us focused on how these issues resonate in the, in the day to day. Any questions about either of those issues or how they relate to our class? All right. Um, so I do want to very briefly touch on the paper and the or, uh, factum assignment. Um, optional, of course, but I hope you've now had a chance to have a look through the, uh, the sort of prompt that I sent around. Uh, I recognize that it's, it's fairly vague in that it's broad. You can go in nearly any direction you would like in terms of uh, determining an issue that you would like to address and articulating how you think that it might be potentially improved uh, with the development of the jurisprudence. And I also appreciate that, you know, having not gotten through that much of the course yet, and frankly, some of the areas where there may be um, the most pressing problems lie in what we're going to see from here on out. And I, I would think especially of standard of review issues, um, Aboriginal law and administrative law and the intersection of the charter and administrative law as some of the most unsettled areas. You may not 
feel like you have a clear idea as to what direction you might like to go or if you'd like to go in the direction of a paper at all. I completely un understand that. Um, but I do think that the best thing to do if you are considering doing a paper would be to ask or send me an email and see if we can find 10, 15 minutes to have a phone conversation, a Zoom call if you prefer, or, or just to talk to me after class um, or before class. Because my biggest concern is um, properly narrowing your focus and it can be easy to bite off a big subject matter um, but in the context of a 10-page factum, well, you really can't go for a wholesale review of a large area. It's probably better to have a, a sort of discrete point that you're focusing on. Uh, and similarly with the option to do it as a traditional paper, it's not long enough for you to do a really extensive review of a broad problem of what I, I think you'd want to tackle. It's something more narrow and discrete. So, um, I'd open it up if there's any questions, but I certainly would encourage people to talk to me about what the topics they're thinking of doing might be. Are there any questions about the paper or the prompt? Okay, well, um, that's fine. I expect that they'll come up. Uh, I may not every class prompt questions about the paper, but I've always welcomed them, and if you're having the question, I assume that other people are as well. Um, and if you haven't thought of it or decided whether you want to do this or not, certainly don't worry. It's, it's not too late at all, and I would say, you know, as long as you start by, uh, by you know, sort of early to mid-November, you should have plenty of time to do this. It isn't an extensive assignment, and if you have a good idea, it should flow fairly easily. Um, I would encourage you, if you are going to do the project, uh, to consider doing it in the form of a factum because that is good practice. It's an interesting exercise. It may be a little more fun, um, in a sense, I could see that. Uh, and it's something you will be writing. And you know, if you probably have done factums for moots before, but the 10-page factum is sort of a different beast than the 30-page factum. It's frankly harder, I think, to write shorter and so it's a it's a good exercise and I'm, I'm not expecting um, a final draft that I would you know as a if I was supervising you as a lawyer that I would say great sign it send it out I'm expecting what would look like a, a good first draft a good first try um, so don't feel afraid of the of the format uh, or don't be don't shy away from, from trying that because I certainly understand that you don't much experience uh, drafting factums, but you'd have more after trying. So, um, okay, we'll move apart, uh, move into the material for today, which is, um, really getting to the core of, of traditional admin law and the core disputes. I'm going to turn the screen off because it kind of shines in my eyes. So just one second.
And so where we're diving into today in terms of substantive review, I hope that I've set the stage for, uh, especially in our early in the course discussions about the rule of law and about the centrality of the question of jurisdiction to the court's process in performing administrative law and judicial review of actions of the executive. Um, I will say I, I like this chapter in the book, uh, and I think there are some excellent points in it. Um, I think it's confusing at times on the question of jurisdiction. I, I think that the author, to be frank, uh, could do a better job of separating out the concept of jurisdiction as the theoretical basis for the court's involvement at all, and the question of jurisdictional issues as a basis for a more exacting correctness review. I'm highlighting that at the outset of the class. I'm going to continue uh, to unpack that throughout the rest of today. But I do want to just hope that you know, if you were reading this and you got confused around the question of jurisdiction, um, I'll give you a little bit of, I mean, put you at ease that I think there is a bit of a confusion in this chapter and I hope to put it straight uh, in the lecture. But leaving aside that quibble with the way jurisdiction is tackled in this chapter, generally I think the review is very helpful and does get at these underlying tensions quite nicely um, and those tensions which both predate are grappled with but survive the Dunsmuir sort of reconsideration in 2008. So substantive judicial review in essence is just when the court is asked to grapple with the merits of a decision of the executive. But it gets really complicated really quickly because the first thing we always have to ask ourselves is, well, why are you even involved in court? What gives you the right to look at the merits of this executive decision? And as I hope you, you, you know, have in your mind uh, from the, the stage that's been set, the, the initial answer is, well, simply this, you, the executive, are bound by the rule of law. You, the executive, do not have unlimited power. You, the executive, only have such powers as are specifically assigned to you by legislation or which arise from the royal prerogative. And therefore, it is my job, the court, as the guardian of the rule of law, to ensure that you have stayed within the scope of your power. And so the answer is jurisdictional, right? The answer to the question of why we're even here is on its base level jurisdictional. Because I want to make sure you stay within your power because I demand that you do so to uphold the rule of law as a foundational constitutional principle that animates this country. Sometimes it's not as, as high minded as all that sometimes it's well i'm here because there's a statutory appeal mechanism and somebody invoked it so the legislature asked me to be here that's why i'm here but you want to keep in mind at a first level if you're going to the court to ask them to intervene in the executive's uh, functioning you need to be able to explain why and so 
Once you're there, the next question that's going to be asked, of course, is, is how should I engage with the executive? Is it my job now to take over this function? Is it my job now to decide this matter anew? Or am I just supervising on a high level to make sure there hasn't been a real mistake here that uh, exceeded their jurisdiction? And that fundamentally is the dispute that's at the heart of the standard of review analysis. How much deference ought I to give to a decision of the executive versus how much should I say, well, it's your decision to make. I'm not going to step in and make it for you. I'm just going to you know, keep an eye on things to make sure we don't have a real problem that arises. And so this standard of review analysis is tied to this question of how much deference ought I to give. And it can seem very finicky, and it can seem at times um, like a strange obsession almost of the courts to always go through this detailed standard of review analysis. And indeed, if you go back and you look at pre-Dunsmuir administrative law cases, you'd read the facts, you read the, these are the points in issue, and you would almost always see a quarter, a third, a half of the judicial reasoning was considering what the standard of review is before even applying it. Um, the amount of time and effort that lawyers spent, the amount of client money that was spent arguing about the standard of review, barely you know, would be striking, I think, if we could ever possibly know that. And so it's this issue that has had this great debate back and forth and which um, has got this sort of evolving history that can be a little hard to follow because it's almost as if the courts were figuring out the principles as they went along. And they were deciding cases, then in the next case, trying to explain how they decided that case in this way to comport with you know, what they're going to do going forward. So there was a very piecemeal feel to it. And you know, indeed, when I took admin law, I think we had six weeks on the standard of review, um, and whatever it was, like four weeks and everything else. Because it really was that tricky to try to piece together all the disparate parts that came together into the standard of review framework. It's gotten much easier, but we need to know of where we came from. So the to understand the standard of review question, of course, we, we have talked about this deep, almost philosophical divide between, on the one hand, people who say the law must mean something. There's a correct answer to a legal problem. And the citizen ought not to lose out on a right or suffer some prejudice because some administrative decision maker has incorrectly understood the law. You have a right 
to a correct application of the law. That's very Dicean, it's very, it's a one conception of the rule of law. On the other hand, you have this, hold on, the legislature has seen how complex this whole state has gotten. Courts are inaccessible to the average person and accessibility has been given to the citizenry through administrative tribunals, which are much cheaper and easier to access. And we need to allow those to do their job, decide their issues without undue court supervision, because if we're always gonna give someone a second kick at the can, reconsider every decision on a correctness standard, we are going to allow the more moneyed interests to have multiple attempts to have different decision makers look at the same problem. We're not going to respect the legislature's desire to give these down to an accessible tribunal. We're going to fundamentally undermine the legislature's broad project. Now, hopefully you see the attraction of both lines of thinking and you can see as we go forward how those different schools of thought animate the push and pull between how much deference you're going to give. Um, whichever one you feel more sort of inclined to, I honestly think it's it's probably comes from a similar place as to whichever you know what your political views are. It's it's just a, they're both defensible, and you're going to be inclined to one or the other, which is why it's been so hard for the courts to just agree on an approach. So let's talk a bit about the standards of review as they traditionally developed. And for a time, we had three of them. Okay, we had correctness, reasonableness, which is also known as reasonableness simpliciter, and then we have patent unreasonableness. And fundamentally, for quite a while, the question within a standard of review analysis is to look at individual legal issues as they arise within this review of an administrative decision and to categorize them as falling under review for correctness, reasonableness, or patent unreasonableness. And again, you didn't have to have one standard for all problems that arise in a particular administrative situation. You could very well have these two issues will be reviewed for correctness, but this will be reviewed for patent unreasonableness only. So what are these standards? Well, one of my favorite parts of this chapter in the book is the way the professor notes that correctness is something of a misnomer. And what it really means is the court's preferred interpretation. So correctness means the court will ascertain its preferred interpretation of the law at issue or its preferred application of the law to the facts at issue. And unless the tribunal has acted in, a, in accordance with that preferred interpretation, the court will intervene 
and set aside the administrative decision. I like the way that the professor frames this because it acknowledges the problem that there, there may not be a, a single correct interpretation of the law or a single correct way to apply the law to the facts. And I think if you frame it as that, then it's more reasonable to understand why we might not always insist on correctness. Like when you call it correctness, it just feels like, well, isn't that the best one? Isn't that what we should be asking for? But when you say the judge's preferred interpretation, you get a good sense that, well, is it really the judge or is it really the body who maybe is in a better position to you know, have the definitive interpretation? Um, so it's good nuance in the book on what correctness means. But the sort of traditional takeaway, if you were to ask a judge in, in the fewest words, what does correctness mean? It means no deference. It means I don't care how you decided it. I don't care about your reasoning process. I'm going to apply my own. I know how to interpret the law. I'm going to do so, and I'm going to review your decision to see if you have accorded with that interpretation. So correctness is probably the easiest one to understand. Um, the judge considers the legal question anew, in essence. When you get these two into these two other standards, so reasonableness and patent unreasonableness. And when we get to Dunsmuir, um, we'll see the court effectively saying, I don't know what the difference between these two things is. They say they really fundamentally collapse into the same. But, this is a big but, in British Columbia, because of statute, because of the Administrative Tribunals Act, we still have to apply the patent unreasonableness standard. Why is that? Because the legislature tells the court to do that in certain cases. The Administrative Tribunals Act sets out that if a tribunal's enabling statute so invokes the Administrative Tribunals Act, then the review is to be done on a patent unreasonableness basis. And this has survived, Dunsmuir has survived Vavilov and remains true to this day, that if you go to court, you may have to apply a patent unreasonableness standard in British Columbia, which means in essence, the legislature has said it's okay to be unreasonable so long as you're not patently unreasonable. So we do need to think still about what the distinction between these two things arguably could be, even though the Supreme Court of Canada has said, in essence, I don't really see the difference. And the best answer that anyone's been able to afford is it, it's sort of a matter of degree. It's how much does the wrongness of this decision just jump off the page. And the, the best framing that I think I've seen is from a um, uh, W. Cab Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal case uh, that went up 
to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the patented reasonableness standard, in this case called West Fraser Mills, uh, oh, not West Fraser Mills, sorry, that's the one we talked about last week. Um, regardless, the, they say the question is whether the reasoning almost borders on the absurd. Uh, I think that's a good framing to think of it. Does this border on the absurd? This just, what are they thinking about? It is kind of the, the level that you need to get to on the patent unreasonableness. Openly, evidently, and obviously unreasonable. There used to be kind of a, almost like a time test, like you should be able to see it really quickly. You shouldn't have to spend much time looking at the decision, which is kind of crazy. Like, one judge sees it fast, like, oh, that's under four minutes, so we're good. The other judge doesn't. Uh, it, it, very silly. But, but trying to draw a distinction between what's unreasonable and what's kind of patently, obviously unreasonable, again, it, it's a difficult question that's being uh, asked of the courts to apply. The reasonableness simpliciter question is more of a probing analysis. You, you kind of... You, dig deeply into, think about the, um, the analysis in some depth, and then you say to yourself, is this logical and defensible in light of the facts and the legislation? It's a more probing analysis, is the idea. You don't need to say this borders on the absurd, Using to say, look, when you really get into this, this, this doesn't hold water. This doesn't comport with the logic of the legislation, or the, there, there's a, a, a reasoning error here that we just simply can't let stand. So you, big takeaways you want to be, it's a blurry line here, but the fundamental task is very different between correctness and reasonableness. And I think the best way to conceptualize that is what is your job as the reviewing court? Is it to come to your own conclusion and then say, oh, did they come to the same conclusion? Well, that's correctness. Or is it to not even bother to come to your own conclusion because what you think is the right answer doesn't matter, but rather to just respectfully engage with the reasoning process of the decision maker and to interfere only if that reasoning process cannot stand. That, that, their articulation of reasoning cannot stand. Saying, I may disagree, but it's not unreasonable. That's sort of the, the mantra of well done reasonableness analysis. Whether or not you disagree doesn't matter. What matters is simply whether on either a probing analysis or a, or a quick sort of, uh, does it jump off the page as absurd analysis, whether the decision can, in essence, hold water. It's defensible in light of the law and the facts. We are going to spend a lot more time on the reasonableness analysis 
when we get into uh, Vavilov, because I think that frankly that's the biggest contribution of Vavilov, is the clarity the court gave on how to do the reasonableness analysis. Uh, at this point, I just want to have these high-level ideas of what's the distinction between correctness or reasonableness and patent unreasonableness, because they're kind of necessary for us to dive into this historical development. Are there any questions at this high level? Yeah. Uh, I'll just jump a bit ahead, but I just want to say this uh, standards of review here. So, uh, post all of this uh, three standards of review, nailed down to two, and then I mean, post dense where the two and then post all of just came to reasonableness, which is more difference. I was wondering if there's any, uh, any standard of review uh, for, uh, for prospective standard, because all they seem to me are retrospective. The code goes back to what the decision maker decided. Anything goes has laid out as guidelines like in you know, like in advance for the decision makers to follow. On like how to apply their oh, no. what I'm trying to understand is the distinction or if there's any any sort of standard of review uh, laid out already from the course other than the precedence for the decision makers to follow for making a decision versus the court's going back using these standards yeah. to, to review No, that's a good question. Um, and the answer is very little. Uh, and in fact, um, I the one time I argued an intervention in the Supreme Court of Canada is actually coming out, or should be coming out really soon. I hope it comes out during this course because it's on competing lines of jurisdiction. And I represented the BC Council of Administrative Tribunals. And kind of my whole point was that you never really give much guidance to the tribunal members themselves as to how to grapple with these questions. Um, and it would be helpful if you gave more of a tribunal-focused explanation. But no, yeah, that's a good point. It really is all retrospective in that maybe there's some exceptions I can't think of, but it, not really. It is a retrospective-looking thing. Um, okay, so let's get into then the... Um, the history. I do want to just, before getting into that, um, again, just pause on this question of jurisdiction. I know I'm a broken record on this, but I, you know, in reading this chapter the last couple of days, I kept waiting for the author to kind of be like, but to be clear, it's always about jurisdiction when we're doing administrative law, and she kind of never gets there. And um, I want just to be entirely clear that that is the right mental mindset for you to be taking forward. And I'll, I'll quote from Vavilov, where that point is very clearly made by just by the court. Um, so jumping ahead to Vavilov, just to get in our minds that we are always, and the courts have always been, fundamentally talking about jurisdiction when they're thinking about substantive review. Um, the court notes in Vavilov, majority. As Gascon noted, this is paragraph 66, the concept of jurisdiction in the administrative law context is inherently slippery. This is because, in theory, any challenge to an administrative decision can be characterized as jurisdictional in the sense that it calls into question whether the decision maker had the authority to act as it did. So this is the point you're always asking, did you have the authority to act as you did? 
And any time the court intervenes within a pure judicial review, what they are saying is, no, you didn't. You didn't have the authority to act as you did. You didn't have the authority to be unfair, or you didn't have the authority to be unreasonable, or patently unreasonable, or incorrect, whatever the case may be. So just so we're really totally clear, we are always talking about jurisdiction when we do judicial reviews. But now that we jump into this history, we're going to see another conception of jurisdiction, these questions of true jurisdiction, which for a long time had a, or continue to have some bearing until Vavlov. And I don't want the concepts to, to confuse you away from the sort of clean fundamental framing of the course. All right, so let's get into the history of it. So initially, what you have is no admin tribunals, kind of, or very few. It's not really a problem. Decisions are made by the legislatures and the laws applied by the executive, but it's, there's not this sort of whole substrata of administrative decision makers administering complex acts with broad amounts of authority given to them by the legislatures. Then you have the development of these tribunals. Then you have the advent of the privative clause. Privative clause, of course, saying, hey, not only am I letting this tribunal decide this issue, only they get to decide this issue, and their decisions are immune from consideration or challenge or review in any court whatsoever. And then basically enter the complexities of admin law. Because the courts simply don't like the notion that their role is ousted from the application of the law to disputes of the people that you know, are, are in the country. So the initial approach is really aimed at tackling a defensible way around the privative clause. And how they get there, you know, we've talked about, they say, well, the legislature may have, have you know, included a privative clause, which ensures that we're not to meddle in the decisions of this tribunal. But the legislature did not and cannot give this tribunal unlimited jurisdiction. It cannot decide just any issue whatsoever. You go to the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal, you know, they can they can determine your entitlement to workers' compensation, but they can't give you a parking ticket and adjudicate your parking ticket. There are limits for their jurisdiction, and if a tribunal goes so far as to exceed the limits of their jurisdiction, we can't just stand by and let it stand regardless of a privative clause. So I've, I've done this before, but you know, if you start with the baby step of you can't do something absurdly apart from your statutory powers, you can't say, I demand, or you know, I order that you come empty my basement over the weekend because it's really getting a mess down there. 
Like there, there's clearly things that they cannot do despite your office as a member of the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal or whatever tribunal you're talking about. Then we're now into just a question of degree. It's clear that any purported action of any tribunal will not be shielded by a privative clause. They won't, they won't, no matter how strongly they're worded, protect from any consideration by the courts now. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when and how far you go, right? So the, the initial foray into this is kind of understandable that the courts are like, well, I guess I need to at least consider whether the type of dispute and the fundamental questions you're answering are the kinds that were given to you. You are maybe empowered to adjudicate whether this worker was injured on the job, but you are not empowered to adjudicate whether this worker's uh, property assessment is too high. So if you were to try to answer a property assessment question, workers' compensation appeal tribunal, you're asking the wrong question. You're outside of, the, of your jurisdiction. I'm using absurd examples to illustrate the point, of course. So they say, in essence, in the face of a privative clause, we will ensure that the type of question, the type of issue that's being determined is within your jurisdiction. And this is described as sort of the preliminary question doctrine, or framing the wrong question, is the error that the, the courts were looking for. Have you asked yourself a question that is just not something that you were asked to answer? If so, I don't care about your privilege. You can't answer that. You don't have any jurisdiction. What happens if they are asking the right question in the face of a privative clause? Well, at first, the answer was, well, hands off. OK, great. Uh, you're answering about whether this person was injured at work. That is the right question. I've got this privative clause saying, don't interfere with it. Uh, so I won't. You know, thank you. So initially, you can think what you had was always a correctness review, but only on a really limited category of questions. They didn't defer to you on whether you were asking the right question, whether you were um, you know, asking a question that you're empowered to answer. There's no deference there. But if you were asking the right question, there was tons of deference, infinite deference, basically, on how you went about answering that question. Primitive clauses were given a significant weight. But that leaves people unsatisfied, and that's a fairly limited type of review. It leaves you unsatisfied when it's like, yeah, they considered a question technically within their jurisdiction. I'm not talking about parking tickets, I'm not talking about property assessment. But they're crazy. This decision makes no sense. You know, I 
I, I lost my leg, and they, they said that, that I should, um, you know, continue to work stocking shelves, and I, I don't get workers' compensation. Uh, this, this is absurd. And so the big sort of shift, like the big step, that kind of sets the stage for everything that follows is this QP case, Canadian Union of Public Employees, where the court says, okay, if the administrative tribunal interprets or applies its law in a patently unreasonable way, they've lost jurisdiction. And this is the sort of genesis of the idea that the legislature never intended to give you the right to interpret and apply law in a patently unreasonable way, in a way that, that, that just doesn't make sense. You don't have the right to make these patently unreasonable decisions. But what's interesting about QP is, well, couldn't you have just said you don't have the right to make incorrect decisions? Is that, do you really think the legislature intended to let you make wrong decisions? And sort of the brilliance of QP as the launching point um, is that the court said, well, hold on. I don't even know if there is a correct answer to this problem. And they, it's a big step for the courts to admit that a legal question doesn't admit of only one possible answer. So what you had in QP was labor dispute, obviously. And this couldn't be more kind of elegantly drafted legislation. You have, in essence, point one, um, the employer shall not replace the striking employee or fill their position with any other employee. Point two, the unions cannot pick it. So there's clearly been a decision to balance two sets of rights in a labor dispute. We don't want picketing. However, we also don't want the employer undercutting the strike. But the question is, what exactly is the employer prohibited from doing? Are they prohibited from hiring new people to come in and take your job on a permanent basis? Or are they prohibited only, or sorry, or are they prohibited also from filling your job with management, with people who are not on strike, just to get the work done. Is it a, is, is it a prohibition on management performing the work, or is it a prohibition on management replacing the employee? And the legislation really isn't that clear. 
the employer shall not replace the striking employee or fill their position with any other employee. And you see, well, replace clearly is referring to, it seems, hiring somebody new on a permanent basis. So then what work does fill their position do? That must mean something. Does it mean that management can't, um, can't go and perform the work? Well, is management really filling their position? I mean, management is just performing a responsibility that has to get done. You should be able to see how that goes both ways, right? That, that could go either way. So the court, in essence, says, look, I don't know. But you know who's probably got a better idea as to how this balancing was, uh, you know, was intended to be done and, and frankly, should be done to better accomplish the goals of the legislature in practice? That's probably the board who deals with labor relations disputes day in and day out. So the core in QP, really three big things you want to think of. A, they think, look, you can lose jurisdiction by making a crazy decision, even if you're asking the right question. B, there's not always a correct answer that the court can easily discern. There may be more than one absolutely reasonable way to interpret the law. And C, I may not always be in the best position to decide between those different interpretations. So what are you left with then? Well, we've now gotten to a choice of standards of review. At this point, we've got our correctness and our patent unreasonableness. They haven't yet recognized this intermediate step, which I'll talk about in a second, or probably after the break. But the broad framework has really been put in place. Like this is a, this is the huge step towards the modern administrative law. The big ideas are there. And now it's really a matter of executing them in practice post-QP. So take a pause there. Any questions? All right, so let's take our 10 minutes now, and then we'll come back and we'll get into um, push panathin and Dunsmuir. All right, I think we're all back now. Let's get back into it. So, coming out of QP, the big factor that seems to lead the court towards this posture of deference to a tribunal is expertise. This tribunal understands the day-to-day -day of labor law adjudication. They understand this statute inside and out. They have some expertise. I'm not going to say that if they take a reasonable interpretation among these two interpretations that you can really go either way on that, that my view should necessarily trump. 
So we should unpack the concept of expertise a little bit because it's one of those things that sounds pretty clear as a concept that once you start scratching the surface a little bit, you realize that it asks a lot of questions itself. So there are the clear examples where you have an expert tribunal staffed with decision makers who have a particular background. We've got your scientific tribunal, perhaps, that is adjudicating complex questions of discharge from factories into the environment. These types of expert scientific issues arise in any number of different contexts. And you can see how a court will say, you know, I, I don't understand <laughs> that type of a thing, and I am going to defer to the experts on this one. But then you start moving more and more towards things that look like what the court does. Certainly, QP, labor adjudication, is closer to what the court does than is um, expert scientific tribunal. But you move even further, and you may be in realms where the court was very recently deciding this exact type of issue. Are you familiar with the, um, the impaired driving regime in British Columbia and how it used to be the case that impaired driving was just a criminal act. You, you, you had a criminal charge against you and you had to deal with the criminal process. And then the government decided to move that to a tribunal approach where the standard punishment for an impaired driving is an immediate prohibition given to you on the side of the road and you can't drive for X number of whatever it is, then you're allowed to uh, seek review of that through a tribunal. Then you can go to the court to seek judicial review of that tribunal's decision, either upholding or setting aside your roadside driving prohibition. Well, the courts were, 10 years ago, dealing with drunk driving cases day in and day out. Now, there's this new tribunal staffed with younger uh, people. Some, I think, don't even have legal backgrounds. I'm not totally certain, but certainly there are tribunals that the membership doesn't have to have legal backgrounds. Making these decisions on an issue that the court may have been making decisions for 10 years, the judge may have been making decisions on drunk driving cases for 20 years. Then you come before and you say, aha, your specialized expertise that this person appointed last week has that you don't have, sir. Like, they're like, no, they don't. You know, they're, the closer you get to something the judges feel comfortable with, the less easy of a sell it is to say that they expertise that you don't have. Another area that, that falls very much in that framework is human rights. Courts often grapple with human rights issues 
And so when you say determining that there was a discrimination in the provision of a service to this individual um, is something that you should defer to the Human Rights Tribunal on, the court might say, well, hold on. Why do they have expertise that I don't have? How come I'm allowed to apply the charter? Section 15 is a matter of first instance, and my decisions are, are binding and guiding and have constitutional force. But when they're applying the statute that invokes the same substantive equality questions, I should defer to this person who doesn't have my experience. It's a fair question, right? So expertise can get tricky the closer you get to the judicial function. And, and furthermore, you have to kind of think about the nature of judges. What's their background? Success up the line, right? They were successful in law school, they were successful lawyers, now they're judges. Just the disposition tends to be not one that is predisposed towards significant amounts of deference. Tell a judge you don't know something can be tricky. And then you want to think, okay, what are we expertise? What are we even talking about here? Because is it the individual's expertise? Is it the office's expertise? If I have a judge who's done nothing but adjudicate complex transportation disputes their entire lives never touched a, a criminal charter case, it might be really easy to, to tell them that you know, they don't have a lot of comparative expertise in the field of drunk driving. But what about if we're talking about a transportation appeal tribunal case that's squarely within the subject matter that judge practiced their entire career? Now is it going to be an easier sell to say that they don't have relative expertise? And then what about the individual decision makers? Um, I say to the court, Lord, this decision maker was appointed last week and prior to that was working as a bureaucrat in an entirely different regime. Surely you as a judge aren't going to defer to them on a question of substantive equality. Is that open to me? Like whose expertise matters? These are all questions that arise out of the idea of expertise as the basis to hang your hat for deference. You know, there, there have been approaches, the courts have said, yeah, it's, it's, don't look at the individual, look at the office, you know, what is the office um, suppose in terms of expertise? But practically speaking, are these considerations going to be in the back of the judge's mind when they're applying a deferential uh, framework? Absolutely. I know this stuff. I know this person just got it wrong. And I also know this person doesn't know what I know. That's a hard um, framework if, you, if that's where you're coming to a decision. It's a hard framework to set aside and say, I'll just defer anything that they do you know, is reasonable. So, you also want to think expertise. It can come in different, different forms. I mean, is it is it only expertise with respect to the interpretation and application of the law at issue, or what about when it's a, a local elected official? The book makes a good point about that. That these local elected officials can have a unique window into the 
situation in a particular part of the country. Now, should that come to bear in their interpretation and application of the law? Might they have an interpretation and application that resonates better with the local needs? Is that an appropriate consideration to look into at all? What I'm getting at here, and I don't thankfully need to unpack all these questions as I would have uh, in a pre-Babylon framework, but I want you to understand that just the notion of expertise in and of itself branches into a number of different sub-questions which don't admit of easy answers and which different people can reasonably disagree upon and which you may elevate one uh, component of expertise over another component. So two different judges could view the relative expertise question quite differently and both kind of be reasonable. So we have our QP development. We have this expertise framework. But we now know there are challenges to relying solely on expertise as the framework. And that sets the stage fundamentally for the Push-Panathan decision. With one more gloss I should put, and that is that, as I say, QP did not specifically recognize a reasonableness standard. Not explicitly, it didn't recognize a reasonableness standard at all. In between QP and Push-Panathan, there were two cases that referenced in the book, uh, Bezin and uh, the other one is um, Southam, or Pezim, I'm sorry, not Bezin, Pezim and Southam. And in those cases, the court said, it, within a QP sort of broad framework and analysis, we recognize an intermediate standard of reasonableness. So, it doesn't really change the fundamental nature of the QP analysis, recognizing that there may be more than one correct answer and that expertise might lead the decision as to which of those possible answers uh, is gonna be applied better in the hands of the tribunal. That QP framework is all the same. In between QP and uh, push then you add this concept of a reasonableness simpliciter standard. So that's the, the groundwork for Push-Panathan. We have the expertise question. We have three standards of review. And the court in that case says, I want to give you more guidance. I want to give you more direction on how to figure out which of these three standards properly applies to your question. And so what they do is they set up four factors which will guide your decision as to which of these three standards to apply to a review. Well, think, you know, contextual factors telling you where you are on the spectrum of rights. It's kind of looking a lot like Baker, a similar sort of approach. And so what are the four, the four factors that you see in Oh, this is called a push pan within PPTH, right? So you have one primitive clause. What they say about a primitive clause is if there is one, it's a strong suggestion that you're going to have deference, but it's not determinative. 
excuse me, sorry. In essence, you could have a privative clause and still have a correctness review, and that shouldn't be surprising you know, to the courts because that indeed is what they did on those sort of true jurisdictional asking the wrong question questions. They've been doing correctness review in the face of privative clause. But you certainly also, if you see a privative clause, are gonna suggest that the legislature did intend some deference. But if the other three factors push you towards deference, the absence of a privative clause doesn't mean you know, correctness review. So privative clause is a factor, but not determinative under this push panathen approach. Second factor, and they really emphasize this as the main factor, is that expertise. What is the relative expertise of the tribunal vis-a-vis -vis the court? And fundamentally, who did the legislature intend to be the final word on these questions in terms of who had the expertise to better resolve these questions? Now, this does, however, raise those problems with an expertise-based analysis that I just previously mentioned. The third factor in this push panic analysis is the nature of the statute and the provision in particular, slash provision. And here, fundamentally, what they're saying is are we dealing with a broad, policy, polycentric, balancing different competing interests, just going to favor more deference? Or are we dealing with really, you've got two people before you with competing interests, and they're arguing with each other, and you have to decide between the two of them, which points to more correctness. The more of a policy, the more the Decision makers been tasked by the legislature with balancing competing interests that you naturally would expect the legislature wanted the person and asked to do that balancing to be the final word as opposed to the court stepping in and saying, nope, I think that you know, economic development is more important than environmental protection. You balance those two considerations wrong in refusing to give this guy a permit. You know, they, they asked one particular decision maker to balance environment and economic development, and it wasn't you, court. On the other hand, you know, you've got a landlord, you've got a tenant, you've got a contract. One person says that the contract says I'm allowed to evict you. The other one says it doesn't. It's not a polycentric balancing of competing interests, right? This is exactly the type of thing the courts usually would adjudicate in its uh, role within an adversarial process. So here what you want to think the factor was, is it polycentric policy balancing, or is it more akin to an adversarial bipolar process? And then the, the final one is the nature of the problem, and what they're getting at here 
is, is it a question of fact, question of law, a question of mixed fact and law? What's the legal problem? What's the legal issue? And I think you probably have gone over you know, deference on appeal, I'd imagine, right? Have you talked about that? The standard of review that an appellate court applies to a trial judgment? Not really? Okay. Um, you probably will at some point. It's an important, uh, important issue. Fundamentally, an appellate court will say that a lower court must be correct on matters of law, and they will only interfere with questions of fact if there's a palpable and overriding error. And questions of mixed fact and law uh, can sort of fall in between. If you can extricate the law, the court must be correct. But if it's purely a question of applying the facts of the law, it's going to be that palpable and overriding error. The, that's a Hausen and Nicolaisen is the case that talks about that, and I'm sure you'll, you'll see it at some point, better. It's a really important case. Um, the upshot, I don't need you to learn Hausen and Nicolaisen at this point, although we probably will talk about it in Babylon, actually. But the upshot for this is just to take away, look, if it's a question of law, that could lean more towards a correctness review. If it's a question of fact or applying the facts, that's gonna to lean towards more deference. So what you have now is four factors. Is there a prohibitive class? What's the relative expertise of the tribunal versus the court for this type of a problem? Are we talking about some polycentric balancing or is it just two people with a dispute asking someone to decide the question for them? And are we talking about an issue of law or a question of fact? And you know, this last one really underscores how the same dispute could have different standards of review applied to different components of that dispute. These four factors, there, there's no reason to think they're all gonna go in one direction or the other direction in any given case. You've got some leaning one way, some leaning another way, and there's no mathematical formula to say, okay, if you've got two of these, you're in reasonableness. Three of them, you're in patent unreasonableness, whatever. There's no formula for that. Rather, you're supposed to throw them all in the hopper and decide, based on these four factors, what the legislature intended. How much deference did the legislature intend the court to give before deciding that the merits of the decision had caused that decision maker to lose jurisdiction. So I think you can probably see just intuitively how this framework leads to a lot of, you know, the phrase you hear, judicial ink being spilt. The courts are spending a lot of time arguing about how these factors apply to any given case. You go to your judicial review, you've got to dedicate you know, pages of your argument to analyzing those four factors. You may or may not win. And if you don't win, or you do win, the other side, right? 
you got a pretty good appeal. Hold on. This judge elevated the question of expertise to the exclusion of everything else and applied a patent unreasonableness standard, even in the absence of a privative clause and on a question of law. Will you go up to the Court of Appeal and, you know, all of a sudden maybe you got somebody who's a little on the other side of the political divide as to how much deference should be given, and they overturn you. You got a Supreme Court of Canada. They go back to the first one. You have inconsistencies, difficult to, difficulty to predict how the standard of review is going to go, and you just have so much wasted time and effort, you know, for litigants, for lawyers, for judges, and for poor me taking in Minla. It was tricky. So what do you get right towards the end of my admin law course? You know, you get Dunsmuir. You get the attempt to simplify this and to give a framework that is going to allow litigants to just get to the merits, to know what the standard review is going to be, stop arguing about it, and get to the substance. And that's broadly what you want to think Dunsmuir's goal was and the project of Dunsmuir. And I think when you think about it that way, of let's take this complex area that's been the subject of really diffuse jurisprudence that triggers deep sort of philosophical concerns about what the law is. Is there law? Is there a correct answer to the law? Or are we living in this indeterminate world of law means different things to different people and we're going to accept all of that? I mean, all those problems combined, it's kind of not surprising they couldn't in Dunsmuir just knock it out of the park and not have to revisit it ever again. You know, they, they had a big task that they tackled in Dunsmuir and they, they went a big step along the way, and then they decided 10 years later to revisit in Babylon. But let's talk about what happens in Dunsmuir. So first thing they do in Dunsmuir that is, you know, I think a blessing to, to all who don't practice in British Columbia and have to grapple with the Administrative Tribunals Act and its keeping of the patent and reasonableness standard is they just say, you're out. That doesn't help us. We have two standards of review now. We have reasonableness and correctness. Where they get there, you know, is probably by saying there, I don't really know what the difference was anyways. But the upshot is what's important. We're just going to have a reasonableness review. The next thing they do is they say, so I should have said it, but this push-panathin framework, you'll hear called the pragmatic and functional approach. I'm going to write it, pragmatic and functional, and then I'm going to exclude it because they say we're not doing that anymore either. 
we are rather going to explain to you why, as a general rule, and leaving aside fine questions of expertise, which are relevant but not central in the Dunsmuir framework, we expect generally that the legislature intended deference. We expect generally reasonableness is the standard. So let's think of it not in terms of, let's look at these four factors and let's try to figure out where on the spectrum you are among these three choices. But let's try to tell you, hey, where are the circumstances where you might not be in reasonableness? Um, sort of a presumption of reasonableness approach, which is kind of implicit in Dunsmuir and is very much adopted explicitly in Babylon. And they say, you got four exceptions to the reasonableness framework, four situations where we are going to say the legislature wanted you, the judge, to have the final say on these questions of law and application of law to the facts. The first is questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole and outside of the decision maker's expertise. These central questions of law. Move over here to Dunsmuir. Then you want to say reasonableness, unless I'll say Q of L, central importance. Um, and you want to think central importance to what? To the legal system as a whole and also outside of the decision maker's specialized area of expertise. Now, I'll say right away that whenever the Supreme Court issues a new framework for what the standard of review is going to be, what do the litigants, what do the counsel for people who are applying for judicial review do well, they try to figure out what's the loophole that's going to get me into correctness, that's going to get me away from deference so I have a chance to overcome decisions I don't like. So this one, questions of law of central importance to the legal system as a whole, was one that was looking pretty promising. And a lot of people tried to jump on it and argue, well, no, this is central importance. This is, look how important this question is to my client, to everybody. This is... If we have a precedent saying you can evict somebody for these reasons, oh my goodness, the whole thing comes crumbling down. Of course, well, what about this outside of the decision maker's expertise? You say, well, they don't have specialized expertise in interpreting the statute, blah, 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 blah. It doesn't get very far, okay? These questions of law of central importance of legal system as a whole end up being generally these sort of more procedural type questions that you want continuity 
as between different tribunals in relation to, and the best example is solicitor-client privilege. Do you want the residential tenancy branch determining whether a document is subject to solicitor-client privilege, and that same document being subject to determination by another tribunal, another tribunal? They all might have different interpretations, and now the protection I can tell my client that I'm gonna be able to give them, you know, to this very valuable piece of information they're telling me, uh, is in the hands of 15 different tribunals, some of whom aren't even trained by lawyers, and they're gonna all be able to apply their own standard. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So something like solicitor-client privilege, that is a question of law, the extent of solicitor-client privilege. That's of central importance to the system as a whole, not this RTB context, but the system as a whole requires robust protection of solicitor-client privilege, and there's no expertise in a tribunal maker, uh, a tribunal decision maker, in relation to that subject. That's a good example. Another good example is res judicata issue estoppel. Have you covered these issues before? A bit, yeah. Um, if you haven't taken civil procedure, do you have to take civil procedure? Is that mandatory? It's not mandatory. You should take it. It stinks. But then anybody has taken it? You're taking it now? Yeah. Do you like it? You do? Okay. Yeah. You must have a good teacher. <laughs> Mine was so boring. We heard like every day was a new rule and we just talked about the rule and it never made sense. I hope none of the old people I took classes from listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, okay. But hopefully one of you will teach and make fun of me 10 years from now. And I'll listen. <laughs> um, okay, so... What was I talking about? <laughs> Res judicata, issue estoppel. Um, these are the ideas that you can't relitigate the same dispute, abusive process. They all are closely related, but not exactly the same thing. There's different requirements of um, identity of litigants that can be more or less flexible in different doctrines. But basically, it's the idea that you can't go to multiple different places getting different kicks at the can. And again, it makes sense if you say that there's going to be different tribunals with different jurisdiction to touch on the same problem. You don't want somebody you know, losing at one tribunal, then going to another tribunal, then going to another tribunal, and having those tribunals each apply the ideas of res judicata, issue estoppel, and abusive process in different ways to get to different results, which would you know, lead to an incoherency in the system as a whole. I talked about an example I once had of somebody who couldn't bring their lithium battery on a plane for their wheelchair other mobility device, and um, do we go to the transportation people, do we go to human rights? Uh, I had to make a choice. I couldn't just say, we're going to try it here, then we'll try it here, then we'll try it here. Uh, so it's a, we need to have consistency in issue estoppel. So what are these questions of law of central importance? Really is going to be things like that, that go beyond the particular dispute, the particular framework and are more just general underlying legal questions.
Um, number two for these reasonableness and less is constitutional questions. And here the fundamental idea is, hey, we're the courts, we're the guardians of the Constitution. Um, this is really our ballywick. You do not have relative expertise compared to us. And the fundamental project of the rule of law in Canada requires consistency in the Constitution. Now, it's somewhat ironic because no document better illustrates how different people can have different reasonable interpretations of it than the Constitution, which has evolved over time because of the living tree metaphor. But, setting that aside, the court has said, Constitution, we don't want to defer on. We want to apply that in a correctness way. Now, this is a hook that litigants love. So now everything's a constitutional question if you can frame it that way. So there's been pushback from the courts. Hey, I see what you're doing. You know, this isn't really a constitutional question. You're invoking the charter superfluously and almost in an embarrassing way that tends to demean the document simply because you're upset with the standard review. Aren't you, Mr. Polly Blank? I think that's word for word what I heard from a judge once. Um, but there are some really interesting questions underneath this that we're going to get into, including when we get to Aboriginal rights and the kind of idea whether it's all constitutionalized by Section 35, duty to consult, are we really going to show deference on these types of issues? Um, we'll get to that. Uh, that's that's a inter really interesting area. Um, number three, you get these true questions of jurisdiction. This is the most controversial of the Dunsmuir factors, and I'll give a bit of a spoiler alert. It gets done away with in Babylon. And the idea here was, in essence, Let's go way back to those preliminary questions. Those, uh, are we even asking, the, are you even able to answer this question type issues that you know, we're talking about at the beginning of our discussion. These are what the court had in mind. Are you even able to hear this type of a dispute at all? What's the fundamental outline of your jurisdiction, leaving aside this idea that you can lose jurisdiction by acting unreasonably or lose jurisdiction by acting unfairly. These are true questions where we're interpreting the outer scope of your jurisdiction. Um, it sounds clean and easy. It gets really hard to apply in practice. Um, Supreme Court of Canada majorities never recognize a true question of jurisdiction, although some some dissents have. Uh, Justices Rowan Brown recognized one once. Uh, so there, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it'll be more interesting to investigate it in our Babylon discussion when the court gets rid of it than it is to try to grapple with what it might be. And the fourth one, is jurisdictional lines between tribunals. 
And indeed, this is the issue that um, the case that I'm hoping comes out soon is about. Jurisdictional lines between tribunals happen when there's two tribunals who touch on a similar subject matter. And the question is, did the legislature intend that you have overlapping jurisdiction and either one of you could decide this? Or did they intend that you know, once your jurisdiction extends only so far as this person's jurisdiction and we need to have a, a, a clean line so we can sort where your dispute ought to go? Where it often comes up is in the labor law context, overlapping with human rights. So you want to grieve your dismissal from an employer and you're in a unionized environment and you think that you were dismissed because, uh, or you were dismissed explicitly because say you, you were, there was an allegation that you were inebriated on the job, uh, but you say you have a disability, that you have alcoholism and it's discriminatory to uh, dismiss you on this basis without trying to reasonably accommodate your disability through you know, whatever might be available. Are you supposed to go to the labor board with that or are you supposed to go to human rights? It's a hard question. And so the problem you don't want is both to say it's the other guy and then you're left with nothing. So there's a strong argument here that you need them to be correct, at least insofar as the scope of their exclusive jurisdiction um, doesn't leave a gap. There's a more tricky question. This is going to be answered, I think, in the case that I expect to come out soon, as to if there is overlapping jurisdiction, is it a correctness review? as to which one should have taken it? Uh, probably not, but that's not been explicitly made clear. Uh, I don't want to get too deep into this issue because I hope that case comes out and then we can really grapple with it. If not, we'll tackle it um, somewhat in Vavilov. But the reason this case is being heard and coming out is because it's not very clear within Vavilov itself. And so there's uncertainty left. And that's another one where the uh, that, that is left as an exception within Babylon, to another spoiler alert. And that's now where a lot of litigants are running to try to get into correctness review. So these are the four basic exceptions in the Dunsmuir framework. Otherwise, you're going to broadly be in a reasonableness review. And I, I'm sorry, I actually thought I was going to have a bit more time today, um, but that's okay. I do want to really quickly, I don't want to keep you long, but I want to just highlight sort of the main issues that are left unaddressed following Dunsmuir. And to me, the really key issue, maybe I'll just leave this one, I can pick up on the other ones within Babylon, but the really key, really key issue that Dunsmuir is not clear on is how am I supposed to do a reasonableness review? What does that really entail? And Binney, Justice Binney, has got, I think, very wise concurring reasons in that smear, where he's like, great, you've collapsed these two things into one standard review, but there's going to be a spectrum of different amounts of deference that are going to be 
given in different circumstances, how are we going to analyze what spec where in the spectrum you fall? We're probably going to be doing basically this all over again. He's like, you've gotten rid of all these factors, you've tried to simplify things, but you've just hidden the problem deeper in the reasonableness review, in the question of how much deference, what's the range of possible outcomes? So that question of really how do we tackle a reasonableness review, I want you to think of as the really salient, interesting part of, of Babylon that hasn't previously been answered. Um, the broader Babylon framework builds upon Dunsmere, simplifies Dunsmere, uh, and is you know, obviously extremely important. So perhaps we'll leave it there. Uh, with Vavilov, it is you know, clearly the case that we need to concern ourselves with the most deeply within this course. And so consequently, reading the whole thing is a good idea. But what I would propose to do um, is I will highlight sections that I think you ought to really pay attention to and put that up um, you know, hopefully today and if not tomorrow. But the whole case you know, is important, and, and I would recommend at least skimming the other parts, um, having a look through the dissents, but focusing and really internalizing those parts that are highlighted. All right, thanks so much. Have a great weekend. All right.